Our goal was to look at verses 11 through 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. I'm going to, as I read tonight, I'm just going to read the the section that we're looking at and and then break it down. So I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, at one time right now. But the first thing I want you to see here is um, what he's going to tell us in verses 11 through 13 is the fear of the Lord should encourage us as Christians to live with integrity. Uh, Look at verses 11 through 13 and you'll see that. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So when you look at verse 11 and you back up to verse 10, Paul revealed... um, uh, this sobering truth that one of these days we're all going to have to give an account to Christ, that we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus one of these days. And it was that reality, that reality back in verse 10 where he said, you know, um, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. It it was that 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 spawned this idea in, in verse 11. That reality caused him to to fear the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord both related to Paul and the people that he preached to. It related to him in this sense, that Paul knew that he would give an account to God for his ministry, that one day what he preached, what he did, he would stand before the Lord and give an account for it. Secondly, it related to the lost in that Paul desired these people to be saved from the wrath to come. And so Paul Paul was completely convinced of a judgment day, not only for believers, but a judgment day for unbelievers as well. When you think about that, you really have to understand that, that the reality of a judgment day is what causes a man to preach passionately. I mean, seriously, if, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, it really isn't that big of a deal to die, is it? You die and you just go to the dust. That's it. And that's why, you know, when you, when you ever see these men who are liberals, you see these men who don't believe in hell, their preaching is weak because there's no real passion. And Paul said, look, the reason that I preach with such passion, the reason that, 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 that you look at me and in a minute you think I'm crazy, he's going to say, is because, hey, I believe in a judgment day. Now, now, let's look at the two areas that he persuaded men in. First, he wanted to convince them the truth of the gospel. He wanted everyone to understand and to commit themselves to this wonderful gospel that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And then second, he wanted to convince the Corinthians that he was a trustworthy minister. Because Paul's enemies were going out there and they were casting him in in this bad light. When you go back to chapter 1 verse 12, Paul was saying the same thing. That he wanted the Corinthians to know that, that he was sincere. Because if the Corinthians didn't trust Paul, they wouldn't trust his preaching. Right? And so his false, these false teachers are out there saying all these lies about Paul, making up all these things because they know, hey, the, the way that we can get these people to quit listening to Paul is just to let him think that he's just a terrible person. But Paul says, look, I know that God knows my heart. I know that He knows that. Paul said, what we are is known to God. What does that mean? Paul said, God knows what I am. 
God knows my heart. And Paul was a man of, of, of integrity. And Paul's hope was that, that, the, that the Corinthians would be convinced of that as well. They would say, yeah, we know Paul. Paul's not a, not a bad person. Paul, because Paul was living a life of integrity. He was living a life of godliness before the Corinthians. And he said, you know, in your consciences, you cannot say that I'm an ungodly man. Why? Because they'd seen him. They'd witnessed his passion and his integrity. Ever since the inception of that Corinthian church, they had seen it firsthand that Paul was this great man of God. By the way, you see that in a few different areas in the New Testament. That Paul, you know, Paul talks about this, that, that most of the time he wouldn't even let them pay him because he didn't want people to say, oh, Paul's doing this for money. And so Paul, man, he's out there doing everything he can just to make ends meet. We're going to see in a future message how he really didn't have hardly anything because he took this to such an extreme. And, and I think he was doing the right thing. But he had all of these false teachers saying, oh, Paul's an ungodly man. And Paul's saying, you know in your conscience that I'm not an ungodly man. You've seen me. You've been around me. And then in verse 12, he says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what, and not what about is in the heart. Paul says again, I've already proven to you that I'm a man of God. It's not my intention to go through that process again. I'm not going to use my time to list all of my accomplishments and all of my references. I'm, I'm not going to give the false teachers the satisfaction of engaging them in debate and whether I'm a good man or, or I'm a bad man. And, and by the way, they weren't convincible anyway because they were blind to the truth. They, they had this idea that they wanted to believe and nothing in the world could change that. So Paul's saying, I'm not going to boast on my behalf. I'm not going to get out there and debate these guys. Paul says... If anyone needs to do that, well, it's you. You need to boast on my behalf. Because you know who I am. Just tell them the truth. Say, no, no, no. That, 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 that's a true man of God. Which, you know, when you know a person is a woman of God or a man of God, and somebody comes around you and then they're just tearing them down, you know what your responsibility is to do? To say, hey, hold on a minute. I don't think that's true. To push back on them. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you guys got to do something. I can't just spend all my time arguing with these people on whether I'm a good guy or a bad guy. You know who I am. If they say this mess to you, just push back. And say, well, what exactly did Paul do? Why exactly is Paul a bad man? So he already convinced, he'd already convinced them through his life, and he, he wasn't going to do it anymore. Now notice how Paul, he says here, that these false teachers, they were boasting in their outward appearance. In other words, these are people who appeared godly on the outside, but on the inside they weren't godly at all. Uh, their hearts were wicked. And Paul says, look, what do I boast in? He says, I boast in, in, in the gospel. And, and he, he would allow the Corinthians to tell these people. You know, that's what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. It says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. That's a great word. Isn't it? Let another man's lips praise you. And not your own. That's what Paul's saying right here. He's saying, no, I'm not going to waste my time with these false teachers anymore. I've lived for years in front of you. You know who I am. If they tell you that I'm a terrible person, just push back. And say, that's not the Paul I know. That's not the person that I've seen. Now look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
To, to be beside yourself means what? Well, it means to be crazy. It means to be out of your mind. And that's what they were saying about Paul. They were saying the man is insane. They were saying that the man is crazy. Because they could say that and they could say, well, yeah, we believe that he believes what he's preaching, but what he believes, what he's preaching is crazy. It's insane. So therefore, he must be insane. And you know what I think it was? I think it was not only his message. That was part of it because they wanted to believe in a salvation by works. But it was also his zeal. His zeal led to this idea that, that, that he, he was nuts, that he was out of his mind. And did you know that uh, when Jesus was walking the earth, you know what they called Jesus? They called Jesus uh, demon-possessed. They said that about Jesus. They said, oh, he's, he's demon-possessed. And um, think about John the Baptist. What do you think people thought about him? <laughs> I, think, I might have thought John the Baptist was a little off, you know. Looking at that guy, and, you know, with all the way he dressed and everything that he ate and all that stuff. But Paul fit right in that category of a person who was so dedicated to God, so zealous for God, that when a person looked at him, they said, well, they're out of their mind. You know, Paul asserted it. Notice what he said here. Paul says, okay, if I am crazy, I'm crazy for God. Amen? I'm crazy for God. And I think there must have been a debate within the church about Paul's sanity. Um, in our right mind, he uses that phrase there, speaks of a person who thinks rationally. There were other people who were saying, no, he's in his right mind. So you got this group over here. Paul has lost his mind. This group over here. No, Paul is sane. And so Paul just says, well, whatever. You guys are arguing. If I'm crazy, I'll buy it with you. I'm crazy for God. He said, if I'm sane, I'm sane for you. For your sake. Now, Paul was sane. He was saying, but again, he's not going to get into this debate. He's not going to give the, the Corinthian false teachers an opportunity to sit him down and debate him on whether he's crazy or not. He's just letting his testimony speak, speak for itself. And hopefully the Corinthians would recognize that truth and they would silence the critics themselves by saying, look, what Paul says is backed up with Scripture. We know that Paul is a man of integrity. He's not, he's not out here uh, trying to rob us blind like some false teachers have done. He loves us. He's working alongside of us. He's a great man. Paul said, it's time for you guys. Am I crazy? Am I sane? You decide. You decide. Well, let's move to the second point here in verses 14 through 17. And that's God's love for us should compel us to be a witness to the lost. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on... Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded according to the flesh. We regard him thus no Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if any is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now, let's look at verse 14 there, that word control in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It means, it means to compel. It means to be under the influence of something. So they're saying, Paul, you're crazy. You're on the, under the influence of some uh, drug that's making you crazy or some alcohol or, or maybe you just have some disease that's made you crazy. And Paul says, no, I'm under the control of the love of Christ. 
That's what I'm under the influence of. Now Paul here, he's not talking about his love for Jesus. He's talking about Jesus' love for him. And it was his understanding that the Lord loved him that compelled him and other faithful preachers to preach the gospel with such zeal and and to do the work of the Lord with such zeal. Paul was compelled by the love of Christ, by this reality that Jesus loves me. He was compelled by that to do the ministry. And he was going to faithfully proclaim the gospel because he had become aware of just how much God loves him. That's that's because we always want to do it the flip way. We always want to say, well, I do this because of how much I love Christ. And you should love Christ. But whose love is greater? Your love for Christ or Christ's love for you? Christ's love for you is greater, isn't it? You know, and if you you say, well, I don't know, that wouldn't influence me. Well, if you're the type of person who, um, when you realize somebody loves you a lot, it makes you live however you want to live in that relationship with them because you know that they love you. If that's the type of person you are, you're a bad person, right? In other words, if you say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because when I come back, they love me so much, they'll be there. You're warped, man. You really are warped. Because when you realize somebody loves you that much, that should compel you to live a certain way. Because you look and you say, I don't want to let them down. I love my mom so much. I don't want to let her down. I love my husband so much. I don't want to let him down. I love my kids so much, you know. But then you think about how much they love you. Now, I, I talked about this a while back. And then I never, ever, ever thought about it. You know, until, until after my mom passed away. It was that fact that she loved me so much. It was that. That was like a eureka moment for me. Why it hurt so bad. It hurt so bad because she loved me. And you don't have that many people in your life that love you that much. You think you do. But most of the people in your life, you probably love them more than they love you. But when that person who loves you, and you get where I'm going here, the idea is the love of Christ. He loves you, and that compels you. You say, my goodness, here is one who loves me so much that he died for me. That's what Paul's saying. The reason I act like this is because I realize how much Jesus loves me. He said, one died for all there. In other words, the death of Jesus for the sins of the world reveals the universal guilt of humanity. If you ever want to say, how do we know everybody's a sinner? Here's how you know everybody's a sinner. Because Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's how you know. And why would He die for the sins of the world if we weren't all sinners? It's a great theological point He makes there in the middle of all that. And then in verse 15, he says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul said, hey, when you recognize how much the Lord loves you, you're under this obligation. You're obligated to live for him because he died for you. But not only did he die, he he rose again, which establishes that everything he said in the Gospels was true. Everything Jesus ever said, we know it's true for one simple reason. He rose from the dead. And that's why we obey His commands. God's great love for us in Christ demands that our all be given to Him. We owe God more than we could ever give Him. But the least that we can give Him is all we have, which is our life. Amen? That's the obligation. Take my life, Lord. Take my life and let it be. 
And so Paul says, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm, I'm intoxicated with the love of Jesus. He loves me so much that I have to live for Him. I have to be passionate. I, I have to be zealous. From now on, verse 16, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Paul says, I don't even see people the same way anymore. I'm so intoxicated, so insane by the love of Jesus, that I don't even see people the same way anymore. I used to see people, he said, according to the flesh. But now he sees these people through spiritual eyes. He sees these people as spiritual beings created for eternity. You know, that was one of the things I noticed after I got saved. You take a person who genuinely gets saved. You take a person who, especially right when they get saved, if they're saved as an adult, a lot of times you'll see this. When a person is saved as an adult, all of a sudden they become a great witness, don't they? They become a great soul winner. And you know why? Because they see people differently. Their whole life they live just seeing, well, people are people. And then all of a sudden they say, that man's going to die and either go to heaven or hell one day. Right? This lady's going to die. Every, everybody they meet. And that's how we're supposed to be. All saved as Christians. Look, we look at people and everybody we see, we should not see them the same way anymore. We should say, here's a person who is created in the image of God who's going to be alive for all of eternity in one of two places. And when you see the world in that way as spiritual beings, it'll change the way you live your life. Because you realize that everybody you bump into in the day, throughout your day is a spiritual being. A person who needs Christ. And he said, he didn't even see, he said, he said, I don't even see Jesus in the same way anymore. Remember when, when before he was saved, he saw Jesus as a false teacher. He was going around doing everything he could to stop those who followed him. And he said, you know, I got saved. My eyes are open. Now I don't even see Jesus after the flesh anymore. I see him in a completely different way. And that's the same way for every person who gets saved. And you may not believe Jesus was a false teacher, but when you, before you were saved, you thought about Jesus. Well, maybe He was a good man. Well, maybe He's a, you know, a spiritual being, a guru, or something like that. But when you get saved, your eyes are open. You see Jesus different. This is my Lord. This is my Savior. He demands my all. So Paul said, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm intoxicated with the love of Christ because my whole life has changed. I see people as either going to heaven or hell. And I see Jesus as the one who loved me so much that He gave His life on the cross for me. So Paul said, yeah, I'm completely different than who I was. And then that verse that we all know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So he says, as a result of this, we see the power of the gospel. In Christ means that when you get saved, you get placed in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you're a new creature. And old things, what is that? That's the old way you used to live. And everything is new. What is everything? What is everything? It's life transforming. When when you get saved, it is transforming. God not only saves us from the penalty of our sins, folks. It's not just like, okay, my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life now. No, God saves you from the power of sin. You are changed. You are a transformed being. He gives us a new mind. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new heart. And our desires and our passions are completely changed. Who is this for, y'all? Any person who is in Christ. 
He's not talking about spiritual growth here. He's not talking about maturity. He's not talking about glorification. All of those things are a part of it too. He's saying that every person who gets saved is completely transformed and is no longer the person they used to be. Folks, we need to remember that. Because in our Baptist churches, we don't see that. In our Baptist churches, we don't really focus on life change. We think life change is optional in salvation. But I'm telling you folks, it's not. The proof that you are saved is you've been transformed. You've been made brand new by the power of God. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Now let's look at the third point here. When it comes to salvation, we can take no credit. Look at verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, verse 18, all this, what is that? Well, that's the new things that come when you get saved. Where does it come from? It comes from God, He says. All this comes from God. We can't do it, y'all. You cannot reform yourself into being saved. You can try. You can say, well, I'm going to stop doing this and start doing that. That's not how salvation comes. Salvation is a miracle from God. It's an absolute miracle from God, y'all. We cannot do it. All this is from God. You can't reconcile yourself to God. God's the only one who can reconcile humanity to a proper relationship with Himself. And He does that through Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus that satisfied the anger that God had toward the sins of the world. He does it through that sacrifice. We can't do it for ourselves. And when we are saved, out of, out of His grace, God now gives us this wonderful privilege, which He calls here the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. What, what is that? Well, reconciliation, you know what that is. That's when... Two people are brought into a proper relationship with one another. One of these is God in this context. The other is whatever person happens to be. And how is this done? It's done through the sharing of the gospel. That's how it's done. As we share the gospel, this is the ministry of reconciliation. So now we have this glorious privilege of bringing men and women to God through the gospel. It's nothing we do other than share the gospel, y'all. It's nothing we do other than share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I've, I've told people before, you know, if you don't want the gospel, I have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you because it's the gospel that reconciles people. Now, this kind of reminds us of, of us as a church, what we need to do. You know, every church, just like every Christian, needs to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. And you need a couple of things to do that. The ministry of reconciliation, number one, you know what you need? You need lost people. A saved person can't be reconciled to God because they already are. Right? Now, if we're not careful, all we ever get is saved people at church. Right? And so we have to come into contact with lost people. And, and, and not listen, I, that can be difficult. If, you, if you're like a person like me and you have, you have a schedule... And you, you do certain things on certain days, right? You, you do that and you know, you know that you can get in such a, uh, just a pattern that you can almost tell exactly who you're going to see that week and not see. 
Right? Because it's what you do. You do it every single day. And so what do we have to do as a church? As a church, then we have to schedule opportunities to come into contact with lost people, don't we? We have to put it on the calendar. We have to say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to rub shoulders with people who need Jesus. We're going to, because we have this ministry of reconciliation, and the only way we can do it is if we are in contact with people who need to be reconciled. And that's why things like what we're doing on Sunday night is so important. Now, it doesn't matter if we do that and we don't share the gospel, okay? Because that's not the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is when you share the gospel with lost people. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And as a church, man, we have to be engaged in that, y'all. We have to be engaged with every opportunity we, have, we can get. It's a wonderful privilege, the ministry of reconciliation. And if you don't do it, what will happen is uh, folks will quit getting saved and your church will dwindle down and dwindle down and dwindle down and possibly even die on it. If no babies are being born, it's only a matter of time before the nest is empty. Right? We need to have babies born into the kingdom of God. How's it going to happen? We have this ministry of reconciliation. That's how it happens. Verse 19, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, God reconciled the world to Himself through Jesus. So because of the cross, our sins aren't counted toward us. When we give our lives to Christ... Now, this doesn't mean that God denies we're sinners. He just doesn't count our sins against us. That word count means to put to one's account. If you're in Christ, God doesn't charge you for your sin. That's the bottom line. Praise God for that. Amen. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But when you're in Christ, you're not charged for it. Why? Because Christ paid the wages of sin. He paid it for me and He paid it for you. He's born hell for us. And now we have the honor and responsibility of now extending the gospel, this ministry of reconciliation to the lost. We desire that they, like us, are going to be reconciled to God. And we always have to ask ourselves that question. Am I engaged in the ministry of reconciliation? Am I putting myself in a place where, where I am engaged with lost people and am I sharing the gospel with them? And it's so easy, y'all, to get to the place where you're not doing it. And that's why we have to be absolutely intentional. And that's why we as a church schedule opportunities to do that. Because this is why we're here, y'all. The ministry of reconciliation. And I'll tell you, when you start doing that, there are some people who are going to think you're crazy. And that's what they thought about Paul. Right? They're going to think you've lost your mind. Because when you start getting out there and sharing the gospel, man, you, you stir, stir up a hornet's nest. Now, I've got to finish here, so I want us to look at the last couple of verses here. And, and this is the last point. Believers are to represent the kingdom they belong to. Believers are to represent the kingdom they belong to. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, ambassadors are representatives. And so as new creations, going back to verse 17, we represent Christ. And God is urging people. I want you to think about what He says right here, y'all. He says that God is urging people, pleading with people to come to God through us. He's doing that through us. And that's why they thought Paul was crazy because here Paul was, he was pleading with people to come to Christ. And it's not just Paul's responsibility. When you look at verse 20, it's our responsibility as ambassadors for Christ. Now, as Christ's representative, we should obviously reflect His character. 
But when you look at Jesus, man, He was diligent in, in, in His dealings with people. He was on the streets. He, he was speaking to people all the time, wasn't He? That ministry of reconciliation, urging people to come to Himself to be saved. He, he so desired that people be saved that when He was on the cross, He's even praying for His enemies to be saved. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This is, this is God pleading with people through Christ. And the same thing is to be true for me and you. That, that we are to be these tools that God is pleading through. Come to Christ. Be saved. Turn from your sins. And then look at verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the He there is God. God made Christ sin for us. Now what does that mean? Well it doesn't mean that God made Jesus a sinner because Jesus was not a sinner. What it means is this. Is that God treated Jesus as if He had committed our sins. You got that? God treated Jesus as if He had committed our He had not committed our sins. He was perfectly sinless. But God treated Him on the cross as if He were the one who committed the sins that you and I committed. We say it very simply sometimes. Jesus was punished for our sins. This is what's called um, appeasement. It's what's called to theologians, propitiation. Big word. But it simply means that God the Father treated Jesus as if He had committed the sins of the people that He would redeem committed. Very simple idea, but a very deep truth. And as a result of that, He says, we can now be made righteous. And the righteousness of God, what does that mean? Well, it means it's a righteousness that comes from God. In other words, he doesn't just um, say, okay, I'm washing away your sins like a chalkboard or something and say, start over. That's, that's, not what, that's not what salvation is. Because if he did that, wouldn't take long, would it? To just blow it. Chalkboard be filled up again, wouldn't it? With all our sins. It means that he imputes, he gives righteousness to you. And that righteousness is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Where did that come from? No, it's not the intrinsic righteousness that only God has. In other words, God is perfectly holy. Jesus, when He came to this earth, He lived 33 years. And the Bible says He never said a bad word. There's nothing that came out of His mouth that was sinful. He never committed a sin. He kept the law perfectly as a Jewish person. But he lived for 33 years and he never sinned. Why did he do that, y'all? He did that for you. Because now that life that he lived, that righteous life that he lived, is now yours. Just as Adam's sin was yours, all, of, all sin in Adam, when you're born you have a sin nature, remember that? Jesus comes, He lives a perfect life, and that perfect life that He lives is taken and it's placed in your account. That's what He means when He says the righteousness of God here. That, I've said this before in a previous sermon, but that truth that can be found in the book of Romans and in other places in the Scripture right here as well is one that revolutionized my life because I could never understand how I was righteous. I could understand how my sins were forgiven, but I could never understand how I was righteous. 
But when I understood imputed righteousness that Romans 5 and this verse talks about, it all made sense. I'm like, okay, in my account, the 33 years that Jesus lived a righteous life have been deposited there. And when God the Father looks at me, He doesn't see my righteousness, but He sees that perfect righteousness that Jesus lived on this earth, keeping the law, keeping every commandment, never sinning. And that's how I'm righteous, y'all. It's the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of Kyle or Ron or Christina. Not that. We get to heaven based on that 33-year perfect life that Jesus lived. And gives to us. That's a beautiful, beautiful truth. And Paul said, man, when I think about that, maybe I am a little crazy. When I think about how much He loved me, when I think about all that He did for me and how I'm righteous now in His sight, maybe I am crazy. But if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. And he says, I'm going to keep preaching. I'm about this ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to keep telling people until the Lord takes me out of here. Beautiful, beautiful section. Gripped by the Gospel. Are you gripped by the Gospel tonight? Hey, don't ever get over it. If you're saved, don't you ever get over it. Amen? Don't you ever get over it. Don't forget that we do have some of these available if you want to grab some here or if you want to grab some outside and participate in the...